Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Hey, New City Church, Tyler here. So in the beginning of this sermon, I refer to some pictures that, obviously, this being a podcast, you can't see. So to spare you from listening to me laugh about awkward family photos, like literally just like double over for several minutes, I'm just going to cut a couple minutes into the sermon. The whole point of the photo awkward (laughs) intro was just to get us started to think about the story behind the story, to think about where things originated from, because that'll be an important theme in this sermon. Okay, that's all you need to know. Here we go. Sometimes you have to ask for the backstory. Sometimes it's like, okay, this doesn't really make sense unless we're looking at what the original intention was, right? And I think that that's I mean, all, all jokes aside, um, that's, that's a really important step for relationship building, certainly. Like when I'm, when I'm talking to people um, in premarital conversations or when I'm just talking to people who are navigating different uh, tension in their relationship, one of the important steps is like, okay, but what happened before the thing happened? Like what's the thing behind the thing? Because there's always kind of a backstory to to conflict and and sometimes people um talk about how like it just seems like uh this conflict is erupting in in a way that doesn't uh seem proportionate to what the actual conflict is and it's like well yeah sometimes you have to look at the backstory and so much of that has to apply to social justice as well um shout out to the activists and organizers in our community by the way i know you've been working really hard in the past couple months but yeah, you know, like sometimes uh, the snarky person looks out at what's going on in Minneapolis and is like, why can't there just be social cohesion in uh, in communities of color in Minneapolis? And it's like, wow, maybe social cohesion would have been easier in communities of color in Minneapolis if there weren't highways built through the center of all of the communities of color in Minneapolis, such that there was like literal like division built into it, uh, not to mention um, plumes of air pollution and uh, all the other uh, things that run off from that, right? Like, like there's always kind of a backstory to why they're suffering. And I think that um, one of the reasons why it's important, why his, telling history is such a revolutionary act is because there's always a thing behind the thing. Like the present sufferings that we're experiencing are always um, from the result of many, many choices that were made before. And unless we tell the story of the choices, then we're not really telling the story of the present, right? And that's not just um, in the negative sense of like, this is why bad things are happening because of these negative choices, but it's also the sense of progress. Like the reason why um, we have uh, LGBTQ rights is because like a jillion people <laughs> majorly sacrificed, including during the last like major outbreak of a disease that was killing hundreds of thousands of people that America experienced, but because it was only experienced by certain parts of the population, the president wouldn't even mention it. Um, right? Like like tons of sacrifice. And unless we tell about the, the, the way that people made choices to build up this future, then we 
we're not really giving a fair shake to, to what's going on, right? This, I believe, is one of the reasons why the letter of Colossians starts with kind of an excerpt from a song or like a hymn, what's believed to have been sung in community, um, where it's talking about before anything, there was Christ. Uh, because because the uh, letter of the writer, who is likely Paul, is trying to convey that before anything, there was this God of love who created all things. And the reason why that's important is because unless we get the story behind the story, then we're not going to see our present reality in the right framework. This is also a really important theological point where, um, you know, when we talk about Jesus, Jesus uh, was certainly a historic figure who, like, literally was around town. He walked and ate and had friends. He, uh, some historians believe that he looked like this. Um, but Christians also believe that Jesus was the Christ. And Christ is not just, like, Jesus's last name. Christ is, like, a particular term that is talking about how uh, Jesus was a person, but Jesus is God on earth. And, and before Jesus, the person was around, there was like this God of love who created all things. And that same God was like made visible in Jesus. Right. So it's like, even the thousands of years that the planet existed before Jesus came around, there was a God of love who was like breathing things into existence and binding all things together. And that's what we mean when we say that Jesus is Christ, that the example of this living person in our history is emblematic of the nature of God, even from the very get-go. And that nature is a God who created all things with love and compassion, who is holding all things together, and who wants all things to be able to live together in peace. This, by the way, is something that I don't think we can ever really take for granted, because throughout all of human history, there has been uh, tribalism and certainly uh, people who have uh, identified other people groups and and um, marketed them as like the epitome of evil in the world and I think that part of the kind of revolution that Jesus is trying to bring about is a way for us to be able to see each other as family like maybe like deeply embittered family that fights a lot but still family still within the same tribe and still owing our history back to a creator God of love. And that's important because the way that we tell our history, again, is how we determine what is going on in our present. The reason why this is on my mind right now is because we just had an election and it was a pretty historic election. Like possibly this is one of the most consequential elections that will happen in our lifetime. And uh, I imagine that the children in our community, the grandchildren in our community will one day come to us and say, so what was it like when Biden was elected? What happened leading up to that? And, and what did it feel like? What was going on in your mind? What was the, the community like? And I think we kind of have to start to really contemplate what is the story that we want to tell about our current history to future generations. And so much of what, what our response to that question will be is determined by what our body experienced 
during that election. I know that a lot of folks, many folks, had like literal flashbacks to 2016 when the election started roll- when the results started rolling in. If there's anyone out there who had flashbacks to 2016, say so in the comments. Like literally people talking about like kind of this like feeling of like, whoa, this like Trump presidency, which was like a joke for months and months and months, all of a sudden is becoming real. I did not see this coming. And like every person whose job it is to figure out what the presidential shakeout is gonna look like, did not see it coming. And it was like, whoa. And I think that in terms of um, community, the story that we tell from 2016, I think was deeply enhanced at New City Church, at least from, from hearing different perspectives, right? Like there was a lot of white folks in our community who were like, whoa, what Trump presidency? Like, this is bad. This is like a new kind of bad. And then there was like a lot of people of color at New City in 2016 who were like, no, this this kind of tracks. Like this this feels about right. In fact, there was like an SNL sketch about about that exact dynamic where it's there was a lot of folks who were not surprised by 2016 who did maybe didn't see Trump as a particular candidate coming up, but who knew that there were folks who could do openly aggressive things against people of color and not be penalized for it, right? And so uh, maybe it wasn't like this particular person that they knew were coming up, but there was like uh, definitely folks in our community who were like, yeah, this is the kind of thing, the kind of direction that we're in right now. And and that uh, narrative of what happened in 2016 impacts the narrative that we tell about 2020. Because if the perception is like, Trump is a new kind of bad who represents like this like particular um, uh, uh, crystallization of, of racism in the White House, that begs a different type of history, or that, that narrates a different type of history than if the narrative, if, if the story is like, Trump represents a culmination of a bad that has been in all of American history, which by the way, even if Trump is taken out of office, still exists. Like, do you see how those are two stories that could come out of the same current events, but based off of how we tell the story, the action that that story invites is very particular. Because if, for example, people are saying that Trump is a particularly racist person, and then Trump is taken out of office, the problem is solved because the the racism was encased or like lived in <laughs> this particular individual. And also, like if we tell the story of like, you know, racism is something that America has been struggling with for 400 years, and like there's been some ups and downs, but like it's still like hardcore there. And like Trump enabled or emboldened a certain expression of racism in our country. Certainly we saw a rise of hate crimes uh, in, in the U.S., but his removal doesn't indicate the end of racism. Like, that's, that's really important, because as we're dancing through the streets, it's like, 
uh, are we dancing for the for those of the new city community who did dance through the streets like is the dancing because racism is over or is the dancing because there's a there's a new circumstance for us to go about doing anti-racism work this is where I actually disagree with a lot of the friends that I have on social media who are Democrats, because as we're stepping away from the election, as the results came in and the election is like decidedly decided, right? As we're continuing to move on, I see more and more memes and social media posts that show um, kind of like, like the cheap shot criticisms of Trump, like uh, folks commenting about, um, the color of his skin, the like orange Cheeto kind of line of criticism or talking about like uh, his body and his weight or um, talking about how he can barely speak or put together coherent sentences um, and kind of saying like, you know, like that, that guy's got to get going and, and kind of like in a playground way, just saying like whatever mean thing we can think of. And um, I, I really disagree with uh, that kind of like triumphalist posture in social media, even for someone who has done like documented and openly racist things, uh, because not because the criticism isn't warranted, but because the criticism must be precise for us to tell a story of our history that will actually create a future that we want. Because if the main criticism against this politician is that he looks a certain way, his body's a certain way, and that he's uh, not articulate, then guess what? Like, there are hot, articulate, charismatic white supremacists in the world. And when that person, that guy probably, rolls around, then, then the story that we told about the Trump presidency isn't going to aid the, the collective immune system to prevent that like hot articulate guy from, from becoming a leader. You know what I mean? Like we need to be very precise about what it is we are and are not criticizing. Because frankly, if someone had a super spray tan and was uh, uh, overweight or considered obese and couldn't speak very well, and was leading an effort for reparation in the world, I would be like, hallelujah, like, please deliver another very mediocre speech, right? <laughs> like, like, that's not the, the, the rubric that we use to evaluate our leaders will necessarily define the types of leaders that we reward in the future what we pay attention to grows. And so if we're continuing to pay attention to certain types of criticisms that maybe emotionally feel good or cathartic to kind of like take your swings out at someone, but they're not specifically precisely naming what it is in the future that we want to prevent, then we will simply live into the same cycle again, and maybe even worse. Because to be real, when someone takes cheap shots at someone, uh, it suggests to me that the critic doesn't have substantive, weighty uh, criticisms for that person, right? Uh, and, and, I, and I believe that uh, for the critics of Trump that there are, there's plenty of material to draw on, right? Like if you are a, a child who's separated from their family at the border, you probably couldn't care less that Trump is like overweight 
and has a spray tan, right? Like, I think that there there are more meaningful things that uh, we can criticize, namely like rampant xenophobia against uh, black and brown countries. And the reason why that's important is because the next time that rampant xenophobia against black and brown countries comes up, it may be from someone who is a lot more sleek. Uh, and and that's like the, the criticism must remain steadfast if it's to be believed, you know what I mean? This also leads to uh, a really interesting conversation that our nation is having around this call for unity and kind of this um, call, you heard Joe Biden's uh, acceptance speech, like this call for like us to kind of like lessen our anger and to, to create peace in our communities. And of course, as a Christian, I think peace is a very worthwhile endeavor. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say, blessed are the stanky internet trolls who maintain their ideological purity and, and social justice, purity culture, uppityness, right? <laughs> like, like Jesus was like, yeah, peace is a worthwhile and sacred pursuit. And as someone who is striving to be a peacemaker, it seems pretty important to me that, that the particular criticisms or sin of our past are enumerated in such a way that we can leverage and use them to be able to create a more substantial future. Um, because, I mean, this is the same for like interpersonal relationships. Like a lot of times people will say, um, I'm, just, I'm just mad at him. And it's like, wow, yeah, your anger is real. Like, thank you for that, the wisdom of that emotion. Like, do you want to go into like a little bit more? Like, what is the grounding of that anger? Like, what is the narrative of that anger? I don't know. I'm just mad at him. Okay. So like, that is legitimate. Let's go take a run. Let's go like hit a pillow with a baseball bat for a little bit. But eventually like, we need to name the basis of the anger because that is the ground on which the steps of reconciliation can be built. Like if we can't name what we're angry about, then we can't name how to make it better. And if we can't name how we're gonna make it better, then there will never be peace. So like so much of, of nonviolent communication and, and relationship reconciliation is like, okay, I'm going to name the conditions the boundaries is always a favorite word at New City Church. The, the boundaries with which I can love both of us simultaneously. That's an allusion to a quote that came up in Sacred Witnessing earlier. Sacred Witnessing is the Zoom call that happens after worship. Um, like, I'm going to name the boundaries or the space of what needs to happen for me to be able to love us simultaneously. Um, for not to sacrifice myself or also for you know, not for you to um, uh, have to like completely um, sub substantively sacrifice your image of Godness, the Imago Dei within you, right? Like that's what boundaries are. And boundaries are particularly important um, for people who have experienced mistreatment or abuse. Um, uh, because a lot of times the pattern of abuse is like, uh, the abuser, and um, I should have put a trigger warning on this. There's going to be a little bit of talk of abuse. Um, the, the person who perpetuates the abuse, like, significantly mistreats someone. 
And then oftentimes the pattern is that person comes back and is full of apologies and is super sweet or super helpful for a short window of time to try to kind of like balance things. But the that doesn't, the sweetness or the niceness or whatever, like the apology doesn't actually disrupt the pattern of abuse. Like what disrupts the pattern of abuse is naming abuse as abuse and naming the conditions on which like that abuse needs to never happen again. So it's like just buying someone a big teddy bear doesn't solve or repair abuse. Like what repairs abuse is like meaningful, deep work to make sure that the conditions emotionally and sociologically that led to the abuse aren't going to happen again. And that might mean separation for a little bit. That might mean significant therapy. That might mean community accountability. Um, it might mean apologizing for sure. And, and certainly stuffed bears help in that. But like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think that the reason why the call for unity or peace isn't uh, entirely legitimate in some of the ways that I'm hearing it dropped is because it's not naming the story behind the story. It's not naming where things came from because it's like, hey, uh, over the past four years, we saw like disturbing amounts of white nationalism and like militarized white nationalism. And that was like, for sure, with uh, young people carrying tiki torches, but it was also just kind of like up and down the board of the ladder of power. And that needs to be like explicitly named if we're not to just like create a false sense of peace and reinforce the, that very system of abuse. Like that's kind of what needs to happen. And, and I believe that that is actually possible. Like we, we see conflict zones moving through truth and reconciliation processes where these stories can be told, where people can be heard, and where the testimony of people can substantively change the direction of a country's future. But that can't just come from kind of this like, you need to stop being angry <laughs> rhetoric. Like that's... I don't think that in terms of the long term, the long game, that's actually useful. What is useful, in my opinion, is telling the story of how the God of resurrection continued to move in people's lives. Like the whole like life, death and resurrection cycle of Jesus is kind of a good way for us to frame our stories and our history. Right. And 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 so I think it is worth naming that like, yes, there are particular ways that we saw uh, oppression over these past four years that were not okay. And they were not okay because of the collective trauma that they induced, because of the inequities that they, the economic and social inequities that they exacerbated, and because it told a story of who we are collectively as a people that ultimately will destroy itself. And in the wake of all of this oppression, we saw incredible amounts of, of resurrection energy among the people. Like over the past four years, and in my understanding of social change movements in America, the past four years of protests have been uh, uh, more intersectional than any era of American history in the past. Like when we look at uh, like Black Lives Matter versus the Civil Rights Movement, like Black Lives Matter 
way more acknowledge the the contribution and and um, uh, of queer people and the leadership of queer people and of uh, black women especially and the, the the tenor of the Black Lives Matter movement um, acknowledged more intersections of identity in ways that previous uh, social movements hadn't. Of course, like the reason why current activism could become intersectional is because of previous activism. So I'm not throwing shade on on the past, but I'm just saying that like it does seem like a significant development of the intersectionality of of activism that we're seeing here. And we, I mean, certainly within Black Lives Matter, but also we saw like a lot of activism that would have otherwise been entirely white start to become more intersectional through that, uh, through the kind of like the ethos that was created in, in 2016 to 2020. So for example, the Women's March, which was predominantly initially uh, initi uh, initiated by white women, uh, had kind of like a racial reckoning. And it was like, wait a second, we need to be more racially intersectional with uh, the way that we go about things. Um, when we look at the, the um, Highland Park High School organizers, they were very upfront about leveraging their platform and, and their racial privilege in order to bring attention to the experience of people of color. Um, when we look at like transgender leadership in, in so much of the movements and, and organizing that happened, like all of these things are showing that people who were living on the margins previously are starting to be able to like go full blast, full like power mode into social justice movements. And that is a very significant development. I do not take that for granted. It is, it is not inevitable that social justice movements become intersectional. So like, I think that that's a, pr a pretty important step of resurrection. And what's also interesting about these past four years is that we saw people mobilizing for social action who had never done anything like that previous to 2016, even though the injustices, again, were present even before 2016, right? Like we saw people who had never protested show up to the streets, show up with signs that they made with markers and like kind of like sitting in the back, like, okay, I don't really know how I'm supposed to be doing this, but I just know I'm supposed to be here, right? Like that type of turnout is also significant because the 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 base of social justice movements grew to include more and more people who are realizing that collectively that there's a lot of power in protests. Um, and then lastly, I just want to name that like I really saw resurrection happening in um, what I it, it was kind of like an ethos creation or like like some it was like a thermostat moment where it was like. All of these demonstrations were changing the temperature in which politics was done. I know that um, lots of folks have criticized, especially early Black Lives Matter movement and um, the Occupy movement in 2010, even though that was earlier, um, for not being specific enough about the types of asks that they want to see happen. But what has been effective in social justice movements is it changes the conversation, it has changed the conversation and the discourse and what is imaginable or possible. And like, I mean, I, even uh, during this election, like we saw candidates talking about 
um, police brutality in a way that we had not seen people talking about it previous to that, right? And like that's, or I should say like mainstream politicians talking about it. And that's pretty important. Like that's a, that's a pretty important historical moment. And we have to take stock of that history because if we don't remember the ways that uh, that God moved, that resurrection spirit moved within us, then we will only remember these four years as a, a presidency of victimization and, and how bad things were. And things absolutely <laughs> were bad. Like, again, ask the child on the border how bad things were. And, and like, resurrection continues to move through death. That's kind of the Jesus thing. And, and when we can tell the story that allows for that complexity, then it changes the type of future that we'll render down the, down the road. It changes what the next four years are going to look like. Because if we just say things were bad, Biden got elected, and now things are good, I don't think it's really naming how the spirit has been moving. Like, we, I think we necessarily have to say, the resurrection spirit didn't abandon us in the past four years, and the resurrection spirit is giving us work to do in the next four years, because as it turns out, neither Joe Biden nor Kamala Harris are a savior. They're not Jesus. They're politicians who maybe have uh, advanced in certain parts of their discourse around race, but are not without problems, right? And as Christians, we're not claiming any one particular uh, political affiliation as our end-all, be-all identity. We're saying, like, Christ is our identity and the kingdom of God is our future. And different politicians have lived into that differently. And we will continue to push regardless of the political affiliation. Because ultimately, we believe that the story behind the story behind the story is that Christ created all things and is holding all things together. That's the most important thing for us to start with. That's page one. And if that is page one, then that means the end of the chapter is not when the big bad Trump presidency ends. The end of the chapter is when that Christ fulfills this vision for all things to be in peace together. And until we ourselves are living into that, we'll never truly create the future that we were created to live into. We will never fully express the image of God that is within us and in our community. This is our calling. There is some historical repair to be done for us to be able to tell a story of a future where truly Jesus makes peace among us all. Amen.